On a humanities-themed trip to Iceland, creative writing professor Kurt Caswell was lucky enough to view the medieval manuscripts of their folklore, the sagas. You're touching, you're, you're crossing this almost impenetrable boundary of time. Coming up, he tells us about his epic journey around Iceland. Kevin Kelly realized that those thousands of photos he took years ago while backpacking across Asia can now document a lot of what's vanishing in a changing world. Over time, I realized I was capturing things that were rare and disappearing. He shares what the modernization of Asia is changing from its past. And a British expat explains why you might stir up some confusion when you use a word that sits on the language barrier between the U.S. and the U.K. Brits get a lot of exposure to American television and this kind of stuff, but certainly you'll get a double take if you use that. Spend a crackin' good hour with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Going through his old photos, Kevin Kelly had thousands of pictures from nearly 50 years of traveling across Asia. He's put his favorites into a stunning and massive photo book collection. Kevin joins us in a bit to explain how those pictures can show us a lot of what's disappearing from the scene. And we promise to get you chuffed for a trip to Britain a little later in the hour. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves in Iceland. A creative writing professor from northern Texas found that hiking in Iceland's otherworldly landscapes took him into a hotbed of imagination fed by hundreds of years of elaborate mythology. It's what he found written in the country's much-celebrated sagas. Exploring the backcountry of Iceland along its 800-mile-long ring road is becoming a must-do experience for more and more adventure travelers. For Kurt Caswell... Iceland offered a mix of literary thrills and natural thrills. As a professor of creative writing literature at Texas Tech, Kurt combined humanities studies in the medieval texts that underlie Icelandic culture with an extended backpacking trip to experience the raw beauty of the island. Kurt writes about his ring road travels in Iceland in his memoir, and it's called Iceland Summer. Kurt, thanks for being with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks so much for having me. You know, when you go to Iceland, it's a different kind of experience. And, and you kind of made that clear in your book, Iceland Summer, Travels Along the Ring Road, by writing about just sitting by the side of a lake in eastern Iceland for three hours, waiting to see a monster that you knew wasn't there. Well, in fact, I wasn't convinced that it wasn't there. And so that, ah. uh, with that, that little bit of openness to you know, the mystery of what an island experience might bring you, especially a place like Iceland. I thought, it, you know, there was a chance that we would see that, that monster by sitting on that lake that day. Okay, same reason I watch for the Loch Ness Monster when I'm in Scotland. There's That's a right. chance. That's right. But you wrote in all seriousness that sitting there for three hours uh, doing nothing was kind of a travel tip. What would you accomplish other than going home saying, I didn't see the monster? Well, I think a, a moment like that, there's a bit of a, a mission, you know, to see the monster. But really what's happening is that it takes you to the lake edge and slows you down yeah. and allows you to spend some time, you know, just reflecting literally on, on the lake itself and the water. And what inevitably comes up if you have a companion with you is a conversation between you and your, your traveling partner. Or if it's you alone, you're having a conversation with yourself. Mm. So I think that's a an essential part of any journey is stepping off, you know, the tourist trail mm -hmm. and pausing in a place for for some time. 
Now, you're a, a literature professor, and you have an interest in the, the uh, medieval sagas of Iceland. When you immerse yourself in a place like that and just sit there silently, does it help you better appreciate how Vikings would have seen things a thousand years ago? Or does it help you kind of be with them somehow? Because they're there in spirit in Iceland. Yeah, I think I think it does. You know, the the landscape out of which many of those stories arose is evoked in those quieter moments. You know, just to keep the record straight, I'm not a scholar certainly of medieval manuscripts, but as a writer, you know, it's a compelling metaphor and reservoir really of of the country's yeah, cultural and but, you know, I've been to a lot of countries and I've enjoyed a lot of, you know, early manuscripts in the, that are near and dear to these cultures, but I've never been to a place where the medieval manuscripts were so beloved and, you know, just treasured and integral part of who they are as the sagas in Iceland. Tell us just what are these sagas? How old are they and, and why do they matter? Well, the sagas themselves, the, the written manuscripts, are mostly date from the Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th century. And they tell the stories often of the early Icelanders who settled the country around 900 or 1000, the year 1000. And they also are records of the Norse cosmos with uh, oh, Thor and Loki and, and Odin, yeah. the gods and those stories. So these, these stories were written down by later scholars, most of them Christian, who were recording the pagan world of the past. And it's a really interesting dynamic there where you have Christian scholars recording a, a pagan past. Did they have an agenda to kind of discredit the pre-Christian gods? I think it was actually the, the opposite. It was mm -hmm. more of a, an agenda to preserve mm. what might be lost. Potentially, there's just a little bit of paganism or remnants of the old world left in that in that Christian culture. Yeah. And those people are uh, putting down their own heritage oh, and yeah. honoring it that way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kurt Caswell. And uh, Kurt's a professor of writing and literature at Texas Tech University. He writes about his adventures in Iceland in his book, Iceland Summer, Travels Along the Ring Road. His website is kurtcaswell.com. That's K-U-R-T-C-A-S-W-E-L-L. So you're, you're a professor from Texas Tech, so you had some credentials because you got to actually see the sagas in the National Archives, which a typical tourist could not, right? I did. It took me quite a bit of time to uh, find somebody who would open a door for me there because mm -hmm. I don't have and didn't have a, a formal project in the archive. Mm -hmm. But they were accommodating and allowed me to, uh, to gaze on some of those actual manuscripts. And was that worth the trouble? What was that like for you? Oh, yeah, that was definitely worth the trouble. You know, I wasn't allowed really to sit down with them on my own and leaf through these books, but they're very fragile and beloved, as you say, of the nation, and they really are a, a world treasure. But, you know, you feel a little bit like you're touching, you're, you're crossing this almost impenetrable boundary of time, mm -hmm. reaching back all the way to the Middle Ages and you know, you can, you can feel these stories come alive out of those pages. There's something epic about people who have lived there. Until the 20th century, there was very little growth in population, very little progress, really. I mean, it's a remarkable, tough community, isolated and proud, and that they've got these, these sagas left, and these sagas tell their story 
It's just an inspirational thing. You wrote in your book that you learned about real Icelanders and their adventures. You wrote they weren't superhuman, but they were super interesting. How so? Well, I think people who can carve a, a living out of this kind of barren rock that they landed upon and they brought so much of what they needed with them to establish, you know, those first settlements in Iceland. They're really scrappy and tenacious, but also I think that sense of community that held them together mm -hmm. is really how they they made a go of it in Iceland. It's interesting you said community because I was just there a month ago making a new TV show and everywhere you go, you talk to people, Icelanders, that think of themselves as a community, their whole society. There's just about half a million people on the island and half of those people are in greater Reykjavik, I understand. And it is community. The children, when they're swinging, the swings are in a circle, so they swing together. They come together and they go back. It's a beautiful thing. People hang out in the thermal um, baths, and it's just the great equalizer. You could have the, the big man of the tribe and the lowliest person in the tribe sitting next to each other equal in the, in the hot tub. They've got a, a family tree that people who are dating and getting serious actually check to see how closely related they are before they, they consider having kids. Which is linked to an app on your phone, as, as I've heard told. You know, yeah. that you, can, you can check that on your phone. It is community. And when I think of community, Kurt, I think of a, a place called Thingvetlir. Do you know? Yes, that, yes. That Apparently that's where all the, the warlords of the island gathered in an annual gathering of the, of the Icelandic tribes. Paint a picture of that. Right. There's a there's actually a fault line there where the two plates come together, and it's a it's a highly um, volatile, you know, geologic region. But there's a there's a stone there, a big boulder they call the Law Rock, which from that you know even a thousand years ago, the speaker would speak out the the rules or the laws of of the nation, and there was a massive gathering, you know, of people there mm -hmm. to to join in on that. And one of the things I think that really binds people together in Iceland is the Icelandic language. It is distinct or unique to them alone. Of course, it's a version of Norwegian, Norwegian exactly, but it's, it's distinctly Icelandic. And I think the, the number, it may be plus or minus one or two, but 95, 97% of Iceland is, is literate. So it's a highly... Mm -hmm well-read country. Mm -hmm. People read books. Writers are revered and well taken care of and books sell. You know, whereas in the United States, it seems that more and more people are, say, moving away from books and reading. Mm -hmm. uh, in Iceland, they seem to have hung on to that. And so it really is a nation of the book. There you go. This is Travel Trick Steves. We've been talking with Kurt Caswell and uh, his experience in Iceland and bringing it home to Lubbock, Texas. Kurt, you closed your book, Iceland Summer, with a quote you just chose out of the thousands of quotes, this quote, all journeys have secret destinations of which the traveler is unaware. Why is that in your book on Iceland? So as an epigraph to the book, I think that invites the reader into the understanding that when you set out on a journey, you, you often have a plan and a direction that you think you want to go, but the journey has a, a kind of way of taking care of itself or taking care of you and sending you off in a new direction. So where I imagined, you know, physically in the landscape that I would 
walk the ring road and ended up deciding that it was better to take a bus on the ring road and walk the back country. That was a change I wasn't anticipating before I left. Another aspect of the journey is I wasn't really anticipating it to be so much about friendship. The backdrop for the story that I've written is Iceland, but it's also a great deal about friendship and how sharing a journey like that with someone mm -hmm. really is the, the way to bring that journey alive. Kurt, thanks so much, and best wishes with your teaching and your writing. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Kurt Caswell tells us about the Humanities Grant that got him to Iceland and compares the larger-than-life oral tradition of the sagas with the contentment he found among the Icelandic people. It's in an extra to today's interview, which you can hear at ricksteves.com radio. British guides offer their advice for road tripping to stone circles and gardens in the English countryside. And an expat helps us understand some of the British slang that often doesn't translate so well across the Atlantic. But first, futurist Kevin Kelly looks back on what he's photographed in Asia over his lifetime and how it now reveals a rapidly changing world. Thanks for coming along for the journey with us on Travel with Rick Steves. It was 1972 when a young Kevin Kelly began taking photographs of Asia. He documented people he met and scenes of everyday life in 35 countries while armed with little more than a camera and a backpack stuffed with rolls of film. Kevin's finally sorted through the thousands of photographs he'd taken from Turkey to Japan. He's organized it and captioned his 9,000 favorites into a hefty three-volume photo book called Vanishing Asia. The whole thing weighs some 30 pounds. Getting lost in his work is a trip back into a time that has largely passed from today's world. Kevin's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to help make sense of what's fading away in a modernizing Asia. Kevin, welcome back. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I've never interviewed somebody who's done anything quite like this. A project over four decades, five decades. Tell us your mission, and did you understand what you were doing from the start, mm. or did it evolve as you went through this? Because sometimes you get into something and you realize, oh, this is what it's supposed to be. It was much more the latter. I was there as a kid with no money and a camera, encountering a completely different alien world from what I grew up in, having my mind blown by the differences and the otherness of the places that I was going to and realizing that even though I had very little money because of the weirdness and luck, I actually had enough money to travel fairly well and to live better than most of the people that I was encountering. So I kept going and I kept seeing things and I decided to record them in some ways using a technology called film. <laughs> you might have heard of this. There was uh, going chemically developed film that was very, very expensive and unavailable. I mean, I was often the only person within maybe 100 miles who had a camera, if you could believe right. that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was um, enlisted to be the photographer at an Indonesian wedding just because I had a camera. Right, they said, exactly. sure, come to the party. <laughs> right. And so I was photographing, and my backpack, instead of being filled with clothes, was filled with rolls of film. Right. I had five rolls of film at one point. And each time I took a little snap, it was the equivalent of five dollars today. Yeah, yeah. And so it was very. So I was very 
thrifty. I was very stingy about what I was taking pictures of. It's like of. a day's wages for the people you're <laughs> exactly. photographing. Exactly. So over time, I, I realized I was capturing things that were rare and disappearing. And I decided that became a compulsion, right. an addiction that I have to see more. Oh, I can't, I can't rest because in Miramar, up in the north, there's this crazy festival where they pull the, the golden Buddha on a barges. And I need to be there to photograph because it's not going to be there for long. So you had a sense that these all were endangered. Yes, because from the very beginning, even back in the 70s, I could witness with my own eyes places that I've been to that I returned to that they were gone. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that. I've just dedicated my career to Europe, and I've seen that happening in Europe in a, in a less extreme way. Yeah. But, you know, one cool thing about photographing things is it sharpens your eye to observe things. And I think that's been a, a sort of a bonus for you and all the time you've spent traveling you're framing it. You're looking at it with a freshness. You're a lot of really extreme close-up work, uh, the different door knockers, uh, yeah. the different hinges. And I just love that you can find that. I mean, think about door knockers, for example. Tell us a couple of door knockers. That <laughs> Tell a couple of door knocker stories. Yeah. Well, um, those kind of details actually came much later as I started to review. In the beginning, I was looking for a kind of majestic, canonical, decisive moment Right. Almost kind of painterly views. Like rice scenes. patties. The rice patties with person picking them up in the sunset. But then I realized that what I was neglecting were these other things that no one was paying much attention to, like the door knockers or the balcony posts or the, the little baby carrier embroideries. Those are disappearing even faster, and nobody was taking any, no, any yeah. reckoning of that. And so I began to collect them photographically. I would just have in my mental mind a list of things. I said, oh, there's another little altar out next to the door. Right. And they're all there in Singapore or Vietnam, whatever it is. And I would say, who else is going to capture this before they're all gone? And so I would just record them. These are the intimate little observations. When I was in Iran in a village, I learned that there's two door knockers on a door one for men to hit and one for women to hit because the person who's going to open the door needs to know if it's a man or a woman outside to see how modest they need to be. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I'm sure that they have their own little variety and diversity. And given the way of the world, I don't think that they're there for long. No, that and you had the, the sensibility to capture that. And different, different Eurekas. I always talk about how I was in uh, Afghanistan and a professor sat down next to me at lunch and he said, you're an American, right? I said, yeah. And he said he, he wanted me to know that a third of the people on the planet ate with spoons and fork like I did. Yeah. A third of the people ate with chopsticks and a third of them ate with their fingers like he did. And then he said, and we're all civilized just the same, you know. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and he knew I looked at him from the from the rich, developed world as a person eats with his finger is not quite as sophisticated. And he wanted to make the point, no, this is what we like to yeah. do. Yeah. And that's what's endangered now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Although I have to say, if I go to India and southern India in particular, they're very eating with gusto in their bare hands, including formal areas like weddings and things. See, I'm like hoping that, is... that kind of tradition, right. it's better. I mean, yes. we've got hang-ups that we don't food. know. Yeah, <laughs> play with your food. <laughs> I mean, in Asia, you don't need to sit on a toilet. They know yeah. how to squat. Right, exactly. And now they make porcelain squat toilets. Right, and that's not crude, that's just no. cultural. Kevin Kelly is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves as we take a deeper dive into his epic photography trilogy called Vanishing Asia. About 40 years ago, I was Kevin's guest on his Sausalito houseboat, back when he had co-founded Wired Magazine and was editing the Whole Earth Catalog. Kevin was an early force on the Internet. 
His website includes links to his latest blog posts on futurism and his thoughts on artificial intelligence. It's at kk.org. You featured headgear. I love the headgear. I mean, that was kind of a theme for you, it seems like, across the board. Cool headgear. When I do portraits of people, I did pages and pages, like, you know, the faces of India, the faces of Iran, whatever. A lot of people are wearing hats because that is something that people wear a lot of, and it's it's partly an identity marker. It's uh-huh. to indicate, it's not just the keeping their head um, shaded, whatever. Sometimes it is, but a lot of it is a, a mark of their identities. I am this. I am this tribe. Yeah, a great example of that is in an Orthodox community in yes. uh, Jerusalem. The hats are like, they look like hat boxes, and they come in all different shapes and sizes. But they're really logos. They're <laughs> logos. They're saying, I'm from this rabbi or this right. branch or exactly. whatever, you yeah, know. Right, right. And they're branding. <laughs> it's, it's so important. So you captured that, and it's just something that when you put it together, you realize there's these common threads throughout different civilizations. And, and the other thing that for me was a real trip of this trip, and I try to capture in these images, is the time machine aspect. This was a way for me to see and maybe the viewer to see what it was like to live in a world before electricity, before highways. And so some of this area, you mentioned Afghanistan, some of the parts of northern Afghanistan when I was there were literally medieval towns. Without, I mean, these are full towns with no electricity. And there was a guy who in the evening would go down the street and light the lamps, the street mm. lamps. The kerosene street lamps, because this was the street lamp. And now uh, that would be the first thing to go, I would think. Is, that was absolutely the first thing to go. But it gives you a picture of what life would actually be like when there were whole towns that didn't have any signs. No signs. And didn't have any screens like TV to hold people together in well, their no living rooms. at all. Yeah. I mean, think of tea and coffee traditions around the world. That's what you have when you're not seeing the, the latest fad on TV. And, and you featured that. Bringing people together. I mean, the games, the water dispensers, the big hookahs or the, the yeah. hubbly bubblies, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, what, what are a couple of tea house or coffee house images that come to mind for you right now? Yeah. So tea, of course, is a central Asian theme. It's one of the common connectors between Japan and Turkey was this tea culture, having tea, cha. The place of meeting, coming out to a place to meet your friends was important because most people's homes did not facilitate that. They were too small. And so it wasn't really common that you would meet in someone's living room. You'd go out and meet at a tea house. That was the meeting place, the third place. The, the idea that Howard Schultz picked up for Starbucks. He right. says, we need to have that in America, this kind of a third place. We've, we've got a, quote, housing crisis now because we all want houses that you can accommodate the neighborhood, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. And that wasn't an option in most no. societies until now. You'd go to the tea house and you'd spend a dime for a cup of tea and, yeah, and you'd yeah, play backgammon. Yeah, exactly right. That's a beautiful thing. Fast food is another theme I enjoyed in your books. Uh, anybody who's been to Istanbul probably remembers fondly the, the fishermen that tie the dinghy up to the harbor and it's bouncing around and they've got an open fire and they're cooking the fish and they slap it into a newspaper with a hunk of bread and you got fish fresh off the boat from the fishermen. That is probably hit some modern hygiene problems and I don't know if they still do it. But all over Asia, we got fast food like that, don't we? Yeah, and that's been the inspiration, you know, from the hawker courts in Singapore to food carts. They know how to do it. And actually, unfortunately, though, they're undoing a lot of that. It's becoming rarer and rarer in some places like, you know, Tokyo, where you can actually have real street food. Is that because of hygiene, or why would they be doing that? I think that's an excuse, 
but yeah. I don't think it's really true. I, I think you're right. It could be an excuse, and they just want to fund the re- get people into the, the restaurants. Restaurant. Don't want a guy out in front yeah. who's taking all their thing. It's an excuse. You can absolutely 100 percent do um, street food safely. Sure you can. Yeah, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kevin Kelly, and he's published a three-volume collection of photographs, 9,000 photographs in 1,000 pages, celebrating the otherness of Asia and reminding us how it's vanishing. The book is called Vanishing Asia, and we're learning about that project right now with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, another interesting thing that I noticed was kind of a theme was self-inflicted pain. (laughs) (laughs) There, there are many uh, traditions, many religious and spiritual traditions have this idea of becoming possessed by the God and proving your possession by inflicting pain to prove that, that you aren't going to feel the pain, that, that you are kind of transcending the worldly and the suffering of the world. And in some cases, maybe even taking on and kind of almost like a, taking on some of the pain of others onto yourself that you can kind of absorb so that's, it. So you're, you're kind of saying this is a common reason for why different religions, different traditions, would all have that commonality. Right, and I've so this, seen... So this, this holy man in India that you photographed literally wrapping his long penis around a stick and then sitting on it. Right, exactly. Or they'll take blades and flagellate their skull during, during a dance or a trance, or they have the piercing of the tongue with a probe. Standing on one leg, people just stand around on one leg just to be miserable. Yeah, just to prove that they have transcended the boundaries and the constraints of having a physical body, that that they're kind of in a spiritual realm. And so I think some of it may be misguided at times, but others are genuine expressions of this possession. And it's not just in Hinduism. It's common in Buddhism. It's common in a lot of shamanism. It's common in Islam. I've done it in Christianity. I've climbed the holy steps in uh, Rome that uh, pilgrims for 2,000 years have climbed on their knees. It's hard to climb stone steps on your knees, and you just feel the pain, and then you meditate on that somehow. It's very similar to the Tibetan pilgrims who circle the holy mountain or come into Lhasa by prostrating. So they prostrate... And with the then, little shoes on their hands. With the little shoes on their hands. And they have calluses on their head, literal calluses on their forehead from touching the ground yeah. again and again. Well, to this day, you know the real devout, at least the Muslims who wear their religion on their sleeves or maybe real devout, that they have a callus on their forehead because of the way they'll pray. Right. Yes. And it's a, a very fascinating thing. If you know what that callus is, it's an indication of how this person gets close to God. Eye contact is another beautiful thing in your book. From a photographer's point of view, you you got you to gotta sneak a photo a lot of times. But yeah, yeah. if you can get somebody looking right into that lens, those are the prize-winning shots. I have learned over the years that the best way, by far the best way to photograph people in their doing everyday habit is to stick with them for several days. Because after several days, you will become invisible to them. No matter who you are, how strange you look, they'll forget about you within 30 minutes. And then if you spend a couple of days in there, you can just, you're just photographing everything and they don't even see you. But I didn't have that kind of time to hang around because I was kind of always going forward. So I was a little more of a ninja where I learned to take pictures of people almost without them knowing it. I was so fast and quiet. But then I would ask them to get those pictures you talked about of contact. You have to have 
it's a consensual thing, and that's part of the beauty of what you're seeing is them looking into your eyes and you into them. Yeah, that's my favorite thing and when we produce a TV show, especially in a more distant corner, is just what I call a face montage. And But we have to get the uh, subjects to look into the camera and stay looking into the camera, and it's, it turns out to be gorgeous. Kevin Kelly spent 47 years taking thousands of photographs in his adventures across the Asian continent. Now he's captioned and organized his favorites in a thousand-page, three-part, oversized book series called Vanishing Asia. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Kevin, it seems like there's a reoccurring theme across the board in your thousand pages of photographs, and it is a celebration of otherness, of the diversity on this planet. It kind of breaks my heart in America when you just come into a town and there's a strip mall and a bunch of chain outlets and fast food and everybody's eating the same thing. And from a global point of view, it's obviously happening. Tell us about why you see the loss of otherness is really bad news. So this book, Vanishing Asian, is a celebration of otherness, of all these very diverse ways of doing common things like cooking food, clothing yourself, the kind of houses that you would decorate. And it shows that there are a huge amount of different ways to, of, to do things that we haven't really thought of before and or have been done in the past. And the reason why it's important to remember this and to be reminded of it and to be inspired to be different is because we live in a world where increasingly how we do things converge on the same thing. We have the same curriculum in school all around the world. Everybody in the world studies the same thing. Everybody wears sneakers. Everybody's wearing basically the same t-shirts, listening to the same music, using the same technology. And yet... We know that the real engine of innovation, creation, and wealth generation in the world is coming from thinking different. I mean, that was the Apple ad. So we want to be able to think differently, and to think differently, you have to have different ideas. And in the hope, I would think, is this traditional Asia that you've documented, it's, it's going to pass. But maybe the essence of that can live on as Asia moves into the future and as we probably follow Asia moving into the future and clearly in our world today, otherness is subversive. You know, they, they, they want us to be the same, fall in line. Yeah. They'll even have advertisements saying this is how you be in, independent. And we're all are losing our otherness in our effort to be independent on, on their standards. Uh, yeah. I'm, to me, it's really poignant how nomadic lifestyles are, are just not viable because they're other. Yet we have digital nomads, and maybe they can be inspired by some of the nomads of old and what they did and how they lived. And that's the point, is that some of these ideas are going away, but they still have seeds of what is new and what we could be doing. And they are both inspiration to, and in some cases, ideas that can inspire us to be different in the ways we're going to have to be different in the future. That's the value of travel, to get out there and see that, and then to celebrate it and bring home an appreciation of otherness rather than a fear of otherness. Right, to embrace it. And that's what this book is, and it's, a, and it's a way of kind of traveling to distant time periods and places in the world that are hard to get to now. You can look at the book and have a journey of 9,000 images. Kevin Kelly, thank you for turning in your paper after 47 years, <laughs> Vanishing Asia, and I've sure learned a lot from it. Thanks, Kevin. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Kevin Kelly explains why the future belongs to optimists in a TED Talk he posts at kk.org. Coming up 
It's a starter course on the sometimes embarrassing confusion that might gobsmack us Yanks and Canadians when people in Britain use terms we don't quite understand. But first, tour guides from England help a couple of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners to finalize their travel plans to Britain. Right before the pandemic changed all of our travel plans a few years ago, we invited three of our favorite English tour guides into our Travel with Rick Steves studio to take listener calls about travel plans for Britain. Going through our inventory, we found there were still a couple of callers whose questions about touring gardens and stone circles had never made it on the air until now. We're going to take a few minutes now and help you plan your English adventure. We're joined by three experts, three English tour guides right here in our studio. Tom Hoopers from the southwest of England, Jillian Chadwick's a blue badge guide from London, and Roy Nichols is a tour guide who's lived in Shropshire and currently calls Dorset his home. Tom, Jillian, and Roy, thanks for joining us. You're very well. Lovely to be here. Lynn's on the line from Carson City in Nevada. Lynn, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, we're going to be making a trip to uh, England and Scotland next fall. And I love to go visit gardens, but the fall is not always the best time of the year to go see them. And I was wondering which ones would be the best to see in uh, late September, early October. First of all, we'll talk to Roy Nichols because I know Roy has a big love of gardens. Is it? There's a lot of great gardens in England. Is the season really critical? It can be. Some, many of them are based around the very traditional English garden type of layout. It, I, I would be tempted to focus on the more landscape gardens, places like Longleat in Wiltshire, uh, where you get all the colour from the trees and all of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. So that, those were the ones I would focus on because, of course, so many of the sort of perennial flowers and things are already past their best by then. But a lot right. of gardens are laid out. Um, Sissinghurst, places like Sissinghurst are often laid out deliberately to give you yes, some autumn so. colour as well. And it is just a lot. What was the name of that last one? It, Sissinghurst in Kent. That was the garden laid out by Vita Sackville West. Sissinghurst. Mm. I've found a lot of gardens are, are just lovingly landscaped wonderlands, with or without the flowers. They're just gorgeous to wander uh, around a, a big uh, manor house. And bizarrely, even roses now seem to have a much longer flowering yeah. life in England. Oh, that's interesting. I, so I, you, it, it's a little confused yeah. now. Uh, but there are other hid cultures of very excellent garden. So let's talk about the gardens in general. Of course, Lynn's going in the fall, uh, but just gardens in general, some of your favorite. Hidcot, H-I-D-C-O-T-E. In Cotswolds. In the Cotswolds, and that is a gorgeous garden, isn't it? Stourhead, which is not very far from Stonehenge, is... Stourhead. Yes, Mm. absolutely phenomenal. Also landscaped. Gillian, what's a a favorite garden of yours? Well, Sissinghurst definitely is is one of my favorites. What's the one up in uh, northern Wales that's Bodnant. so nice? Bodnant. Bodnant Gardens. That's mm. just delightful. And, that, and that's a good example because the roses were flowering there in October. Mm. Yeah. And it's, and it's a huge ground. That's, is yeah. a, it's mm. like going through a fantasy forest as well as a garden. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions to it. And, and the view down the slopes to the river across to Snowdonia is absolutely phenomenal. So yes. you get the autumn color so and still Snowdonia. That's called Bodenant Gardens. Bodenant. B-O-D-N-A-N-T. It's mm-hmm. near, uh, just south of Conway, Conway I think. Conway. And Roy, where's your favorite, or where's a garden that we should know about? Well, the one I like, which is not too far from Sissinghurst, is Great Dixter. Great Dixter. Yes, it's based around an old, the garden itself is 20th century, but uh, it, it's based around an old medieval manor house, and it's got a beautiful garden on a, quite a small scale, 
Um, not even as large as Sissinghurst, but it's a beautiful garden. And if you're concerned about the weather, you could be in London and go out to Kew Gardens. Kew Gardens, oh, of course. Yeah. And there's mm. an amazing greenhouse, right? It's a giant. More than one. What, what, talk about Kew Gardens. Kew Gardens houses historically some of the most important collections of plants from seas that were brought over. So and they're they're huge. They're huge. What, what huge. do we call these these big uh, Victorian age glass houses? Uh, glass houses. Yeah. It's like jungle. You Almost. can go to the jungle in London. You know, I went to Eden. What is it the called? Eden, Eden Project. Project. I went to Eden the Eden Project, Project just last summer. That is pretty it's wild. Fantastic. Yeah. These giant. There's like the the desert and the yeah. tropics. And I think. Jungle, and yeah. they're the giant uh, geodesic domes uh, mm-hmm. and uh, people that are just so passionate about the environment. So, Lynn, there's lots of opportunities for you to enjoy uh, uh, some beautiful gardens in England. Right. Like I've, I've heard of Q, but the other ones are, are new to me. All right, Lynn. Thanks for your call, Lynn. Okay. Thank you so much for the information. You bet. Happy travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Roy Nichols, Jillian Chadwick, and Tom Hooper, all guides from England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Karen's on the line uh, in Santa Rosa, California. Karen, thank you so much for calling. Hello. How are you? Great. Do you have a a favorite dimension of England you'd like to talk about with our guides? I do. Uh, a couple of years ago, we spent about 10 days in Scotland and decided we'd drive down to York instead of taking the train. And so we were looking for some things to do on the way, and found out there's a stone circle about an hour south of Hadrian's Wall called Long Meg and Her Daughters. And apparently it's, a, I guess, the second largest stone circle after Stonehenge. Wait a second. Long Meg and Her Daughters. That's yeah. such an English name. I love that. Long Meg and her daughter. So does that sort of uh, mirror the, the design of the stones or something? Are there some outlaying stones that are the daughters, or how does yeah, that work? Yeah, there, there's, there's one, I guess, one tallest stone that, I don't know, is probably 10 to 15 feet tall, and the diameter of the circle is probably bigger than a football field, maybe okay. 350 feet in diameter, and there's somewhere between, I don't know, 60, 70 stones in the circle. And it's in the middle of no place. So we had a wonderful drive on many one-leg country roads getting there. And fortunately, our GPS found it for us. But it was we were the only people there. So you're all be. alone with your private Stonehenge. Well, with Meg. Exactly. With exactly. Meg and her daughters. She, she was with Meg and her daughters. <laughs> Roy, there must be a, a lot of Megs and their daughters. Oh, there are. Meg. I mean... People tend to think of Avebury and Stonehenge, and they are rightly famous, but there are hundreds of different stone circles of varying sizes. And I know Long Megan and Daughters, not intimately, (laughs) um, but it lies just to the east of Carlisle, and it is very typical of so many of these stone circles. There's some magic moments you can have all alone with your stone circle. Most of us travelers have our favorites. What's your favorite, Tom, to be alone with a stone circle? Um, Probably Castlerigg. Me too. Mm. Castlerigg's great, and that's just uh, 50 yards off of the road, Mm. so it's quite convenient. That's just before you get to Keswick. But but again, sometimes there's nobody there. All alone at sunset with Mm. just a couple of uh, New Age types that are sitting cross-legged there chanting (laughs) or something. Uh, Jillian, do you have a favorite stone circle? I was going to say Castlerigg as well. Castlerigg is really a delight. If you're going into Cumbrian Lake district in the north. You've got to stop at Castle Rig. Mm. Part of that is because it's on a little bluff surrounded by like a stone circle of mountains, it yes. seems like, and it's all calibrated together. I was just down in uh, Dartmoor and uh, there's so many beautiful megaliths and so on and uh, what is it? The Gidley Circle. Yeah, the Gidley, Gidley Circle oh, down. Man, down. that is so nice. But if you have a map and you, I mean, how would you find all these circles? Right? 
Well, I mean, they are on the Ordnance Survey maps, but or a good thing to do, there is online resources that you can go and find out lists. There's actually a, um, a society that sort of uh, lists all of these. How old are these things? Well, they, they're generally sort of either late uh, Neolithic or generally Bronze Age. So we're looking about sort of 2,500 BC through to about so 1,500 BC. So old as the pyramids well, oh, ca- yes. in yeah. England. Castle Rigs, mm-hmm. older. 3,000. So uh, it's really a matter of, uh, as Karen was talking about, getting out the GPS, doing your study, and going down those little lanes and finding yes. your own stone circle. And there are huge numbers of them right across the country from yeah. one end to the other. Karen, any other thoughts on stone circles, Karen? Um, it was it was funny because there was a little road that just went through the middle of the stone circle to a farmhouse down the road. So as my husband and I were walking around the stone circles trying to count them to see if they came up with the same number, which we did not, a little car goes by to the farmhouse. When I see those little farmhouses and so on, I, I think about 600 years ago, that stone circle was there, the mm. a farm was there, and there was probably some very superstitious ideas about what the stone the, circle yes. meant, and yeah. you would never walk there, and you would stay away, and you might pour some beer on it at yeah. Christmas or, or whatever. A bit pagan. Pagan. Karen, thanks for your call. Oh, no problem. It was great. Thank you. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about traveling in England with our three wonderful English guides, Tom Hooper, Jillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols. Roy, Jillian, Tom, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Welcome. After moving to Seattle, Scots born Chris Ray realized he sometimes had to choose his words carefully to be understood by us Yanks. There's plenty of slang, and even common English words can confuse people on either side of the Atlantic since they don't always refer to the same things. So Chris compiled a sort of mini-dictionarian website listing many commonly used terms in the UK that might baffle an American or Canadian whilst in Britain. Chris joins us from the Travel with Rick Steves archives. A lot of people are kind of stressed out about the language barrier, so they go to Britain. And when they get to Britain, they realize there's a language barrier. In fact, Oscar Wilde says, America and Britain are two nations divided by a common language. I'm joined today by Chris Ray, who's written a book about the language barrier Americans will experience when they go to Britain. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Your book is called The Septic's Companion. An American has to ask right off the bat, what do you mean by septic? I think of septic tank. Yep, and and you would be right thinking of that. To explain the title, I guess, I have to explain a little bit about Cockney rhyming slang. Okay, so these are the people that live sort of working class down the river in London, right? Exactly. I think think technically it's people who were born within the sound of Bobel's church or that kind of thing. Uh, So Cockney rhyming slang is a wordplay where you use a two-word couplet to refer to another word which rhymes with the second word of the couplet. So to give you an example uh, of ones that are in sort of everyday use in the UK, butcher's hook is used to mean the word look. And you can then say... Just because hook rhymes with look. Exactly. It's that simple. Precisely. Okay, so give me another example. Uh, So let's say loaf. People use loaf of bread to say head. Uh, And I ought to add that you don't necessarily have to use both words of this couplet to mean the other word. So you could say loaf to mean head, and you could say butchers to mean look. Use your loaf is a very common uh, phrase in the UK. So butcher's hook means look. Correct. Give it a butcher's hook, give it a look. Give it a butcher's, yeah. And you could then just say, give it a butcher's. Mm -hmm. This is like a secret language of the Cockney people. (laughs) Is that so poor people can communicate without rich people understanding? It's an interesting one. Uh, Cockney rhyming slang is curious because 
if, if you ask a Brit for examples of currently rhyming slang, they'll give you reams and reams of them. And in actual fact, a lot of them are not in real life usage. A lot of them are just ones that maybe were used a long time ago or that people bring out as examples of Cockney rhyming slang, but they're not in everyday use. Now, I mean, you're, you're Scottish. I'm Scottish, yeah. So you grew up in where? Edinburgh or something? Uh, I grew up in Edinburgh. I lived in London for 10 years. So if you went down into uh, within the earshot of Bose Bells or whatever, you would hear people in the working class neighborhoods still talking a lot of Cockney stuff? Oh, yes. I mean, all over the UK, people will use, like the examples I gave you, butcher's loaf. Uh, people say Jackie's to mean Jackie Onassis, glasses. You know, let me, let me put so my Jackie's Jackie on. So Jackie Onassis rhymes with glasses. So you could say Jackie Onassis to mean glasses, and then you could just drop the thing that rhymes and just call it Jackie's, which means glasses. Yep. That's very complicated. Okay, getting back to our original question then, why is your book called The Septic's Companion? You were right to start with. Septic tank uh, is rhyming slang for yank, which to a Brit is anyone in America. Septic tank. So you could call a yank a septic tank if you're Cockney, and then if you're really uh, casual with the language, just shorten it by calling it a septic. So Cockney people can call a Yankee a septic. Correct. There you go. So this is the, the septic's companion. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask you a few of these, and we'll talk about it. Um, Baltic. Baltic. Baltic, yes. Very cold. So is that just because the Baltics are up in the north? Yeah, I think it really is that simple. So it's like Baltic out. Yep. It's like we could say it's Alaskan out. Uh, yes. But we don't. Bangers. I see that on the menus. You want some bangers? Yep. What is and, that? And usually in bangers and mash. Bangers are just sausages. The etymology is a little vague, but it likely comes from the fact that, that sausages bang if they're sausages with thick skins and you uh, fry them for a little too long. Or they pop when they're cooking. Yeah. Bangers. Oh, okay. Well, you have, you have crackers at Christmas, right? Little toys that pop. We do. On a bank holiday, you might have bangers. What's a bank holiday? <laughs> um, bank, so, so to a Brit, uh, a holiday is not only uh, a, a sort of preset holiday by the state. It's also just any time off work. And a bank holiday is uh, traditionally a day when the banks are shut. And so this is, a, this is a state holiday when the banks are shut. So in our country, President's Day, uh, I don't know, uh, Veterans Day, uh, a day when the banks are shut, yep. you would just call a holiday a bank holiday. Yeah, that's School true. would be out, banks are closed. It's a holiday, bank holiday. Yeah, and, and actually bank holidays have become a little bit more, they're harder to nail down these days. Many people working in the UK will get bank holidays off. Many people will not get bank holidays off, and they'll get a day in lieu instead. But nobody's beavering on a bank holiday. <laughs> beavering meaning kind of working away busily, of course. Is that what beavering means? Yeah, it does indeed, yeah. And I think, again, it's just much like, you know, beaver is kind of chewing away. So beavers are like busy as a, a busy, what do we say, a busy bunny or busy... Yeah, busy, <laughs> well, you could say beaver. So busy, busy as bee. a beaver. Yeah. Okay, so beavering is working hard. Yep, it is indeed. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Chris Ray. He's the author of The Septic's Companion, which he calls A Mercifully Brief Guide to British Culture and Language. By the way, the title owes a bit to Cockney Rhyming Slang, which he explains further in the book. His website is septicscompanion.com, and that's without an apostrophe. Chris, I'd like to just go on a couple of words here just for fun here. Afters. When you're looking on the menu, it says afters. What are we looking at there? Yeah, you're looking at desserts. Um, it's an interesting one that we don't we don't call appetizers befores, but uh, we do call them starters. And you see that a little bit on U.S. menus, so that's reasonably well known. But so there's some confusion. And entrees, that's our big course. Yeah, that's true. We would call that a main course. And what is an entree for you? Um, an entree is a starter for it's us. It's an appetizer. Yes, yes. There is a little bit. Um, there is a little bit of confusion on that one. I really do admit that is confusing. Okay. Now, uh, sometimes somebody it's bad weather out. And they want to put on their anorak. Am I pronouncing that right? Anorak. Uh, you're pronouncing that exactly right. Okay, so that, that's what we would call a parka. 
Yeah, exactly. It's supposedly, the word anorak also means someone who's a bit kind of nerdy about a particular topic. There's a bit of a debate about the etymology of it, but uh, historically in the UK, we had uh, very tightly controlled radio, and some of the radio stations broadcast from ships offshore to avoid the rules. And the fans of those radio stations would go out and stand on the ships and, uh, you know, to take part in the radio programs, all wearing anoraks. And it's possible that the word anorak, as, as meaning sort of a nerdy person, came from the description of those fans by the, the radio program people. So an anorak is a geek. Yeah, exactly. Because he wears a waterproof jacket to be on a radio show. Yeah. Obviously. And anti-clockwise. Of course, we have counterclockwise. Yeah, I don't know how we ended up doing that differently. Uh, Anti-clockwise. But so yes. if you say counterclockwise in Britain, it's not right. I, th- I mean, it, it's the case with a lot of uh, words. If you're American, Brits get a lot of exposure to American television and this kind of stuff. But also with this, with this particular one, it's reasonably easy to guess at. But certainly you'll get a double take if you use that. So if you're going into a roundabout, you don't go anti-clockwise because the British drive on the left side of the road. You're going to go into this. You're not going to stop at a stop sign and you're going to go clockwise. Correct. And if you have an articulated lorry... What does that mean? Uh, a lorry is uh, what Americans would call um, a, a big truck, and an articulated uh, lorry is one that is, that's kind of bent in the middle, so that the cab part will separate from the, okay, from the so, container part. Uh, how about blimey? Where does that come from? Blimey. You hear that on movies a lot. Yeah, and that's true. Or the, the sort of longer phrase, core blimey, is like an older verse in the same thing. Um, I think it's, it's reasonably certain that the etymology of that is from the phrase, God blind me, and and that comes from... Uh, some sort of version of may God blind me if this is not so. Okay, I could see that in medieval times and then just kind of evolving into blimey. Yeah, but blimey blimey now is very much an everyday phrase in the UK. Now, I like to say bloody, bloody hot, but when I say that, other people act like I'm cursing or swearing. Is it really a, a bad word, bloody it's, it, in, in that context, it's maybe... It's like damned, isn't it? It's very like damn in, in that sense. You'd never put it up in, you know, a presentation you were doing, but, you know, you wouldn't get fired for using it ever, I don't think. So it's, it's just a, a strong word. It's a sort of mild swear word. Where did that word come from, bloody? I think it's from uh, By Our Lady. This is another another So another you know, God-blind-me yeah. sort of thing. So a lot of the uh, Christian sort of medieval heritage of England survives in its, in its bloody language. Yeah, true. All right. Bob's your uncle. I love that when people say Bob's your uncle. Yeah, I hope you're not going to ask me where that comes from because I have no idea. I just hardly, it's, you know, <laughs> it makes sense when somebody says it, but I have a hard time explaining it. How do you define, oh, Bob's your uncle? It's kind of like, you know, you're done, you know, you're, that's it. It's you, kind of like, well, obviously, right? Yeah, kind of. It's like, that's it complete. You know, you, once you complete these steps, Bob's your uncle. I you see. Know, you're done. So you follow the directions carefully. One, two, three, and Bob's your uncle. Exactly, yeah. Turn left at the bank, then down the road, and, you know, Bob's and it, your uncle. It's not rocket science. Bob's your uncle. Yep. Chris, we've just uh, scratched the surface, but it's a fascinating thing, studying the, the language barrier between Britain and America. Chris has written The Septics Companion. Chris's website is septicscompanion.com. Chris, uh, in Britain, you would say cheers. Does that mean sort of thanks? Yep, cheers means pretty much thanks. We might also say a little bit more informally ta or ta very much. Ta. And uh, ta, where, where, what would that be from? Uh, I believe it's from the Scandinavian word talk, meaning thank you. Uh, All the Scandinavians say talk, so in England you just drop the K, talk. Talk very much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzov. Website uploads are managed by Andrew Wakeley. Jerry Frank wrote and performed our theme music. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students. It gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.